Welcome to Micropulse Canada. I am your host, Tanya Matanda. This week, I have the pleasure of releasing a podcast interview with Quentin Versetti. Quentin Versetti is an award-winning, multidisciplinary storyteller, entrepreneur, and activist. Among many accomplishments, he's the co-founder and director of the Black Speculative Arts Movement, a movement grounded in second-wave Afrofuturism that provides new perspectives to reimagining public spaces. In addition, he designed the Joshua Glover Memorial, Toronto's first monument dedicated to a person of African descent, and he co-edited The Cosmic Underground Northside, an incantation of Black Canadian speculative discourse and inner standings. This book is a seminal collection consisting of works from cross-generations and pan-national Black creatives and cultural producers from Canada. Recognized as a leader in Canada's arts and culture sector, I'm excited to release this podcast titled Perspectives on Indigenous and Afrofuturism in Arts and Beyond. Hey, Quentin, how are you doing? Greetings, I'm good, I'm good, and yourself? I'm doing well, thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I'm super excited to talk to you. Um, uh, Micropulse is a podcast interviewing change makers uh, such as yourself. So super excited for uh, whoever listens to this to, to learn uh, about you, but uh, and everything you try, you're accomplishing at the moment. Uh, so, so thank you for taking the time. Yeah, thank you for having me. For sure. Um, so let's start from the beginning. Uh, tell me a bit about uh, your life story from the beginning yeah um my life story is an interesting one just because there's been so many ups and downs uh you know it's it's a one where i was born in a neighborhood or born in a in a, in a time and in a neighborhood where things were a bit rough uh for people young black men who look like me uh, i was raised around a lot of gangs a lot of drugs and just a lot of negative influences and, and i got caught up in some of that um at a young age and uh, essentially, uh, throughout my adolescence, you know, I kind of just went through thinking that my circumstances and my situation defines who I am. You know, I was kind of living by this idea that I was a product of my environment and uh, I was making decisions as if that was true. Um, and so it really took my mother um, to remove me from my environment um, due to a situation that happened. A, a friend of mine got killed in a party and... Um, Essentially, I was being blamed uh, or I was being associated with his murder, even though I was there um, and stood by him, uh, you know, while he bled out. And, you know, the police treated me as if I was, you know, um, and then just like things had to spiral in my world. And my mom, my mom was just like, yeah, enough is enough. Uh, you know, I can't I can't uh, bury my son, you know, and so she sent me away to school. Went to school in the states for a bit, um, and even while I was in the, in the states, you know, I was still trying to find myself and and still trying to understand what it means to be a leader and be an individual, and so that led me to uh, getting kicked out of school in the states, and then uh, living in Florida for a bit in Orlando with my uncle, where I saw the whole scope of uh, the two extremes. And the two extremes was uh, one was my uncle who was a legitimate businessman. And then uh, one of his clients slash partners who was uh, very crooked and like, but they both acquired wealth in very different ways, but it taught me the importance of business and the importance of integrity, 
you know, and um, I had to make a decision, you know, essentially of like what direction did I want to go in, you know, and um, essentially art was uh, that deciding factor for me because it was a way that allowed, it was a means that allowed me to make sense of the decisions I was making in my life and all the things that was happening around me and helped me to realize that I am not my circumstances and I'm not my situation. I'm the choices and I'm not the choices that I make, but I'm, I'm the decision of, 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 uh, of the direction I choose to go in, you know? And so, um, yeah, I decided, I decided to choose life, you know, what, what, uh, route, what was the best route that would allow me to keep living and keep on, uh, growing essentially. And, um, in short, you know, there was a lot of, you know, heartache. I continued to lose a lot of close friends, unfortunately. You know, uh, my brother Rory passed away from a uh, uh, brain aneurysm in 2017. Uh, he was like my he was my childhood friend, one of my last one of my last childhood friends, and uh, had another friend, close close childhood friend, who was turning his life around. But then, uh, uh, basically, an old charge was brought back up. Uh, linking him to a murder and so he went to jail and then I lost another friend in 2019 uh, Jordan Vieira uh, who also died uh, suddenly and so all these mishaps and all these uh, these ups and downs each taught me a lesson you know and e each one put me in a position where I had to make a decision for myself one of the big uh, change in factors or chain change reaction as i like to call it uh that took place in my life was uh around the time when i was 16 just before my mom sent me away uh, actually you know 14 14 going on 15 um i was arrested i was arrested uh for an armed robbery and uh the police officer well you know there was like this good cop bad cop type of scenario where one was just beating up on me and just where is the weapons? Da, 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 da. Why did you do this? Da, 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 da. And then the other one was just like, listen, man, I know you're a good kid. I get the sense you're a good kid. Da, 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 da. And uh, while like I was trying to like mend my wounds and stuff like that, like like he bust my eyebrow. Like if you look, I have a scar in my eyebrow and stuff, and like just a lot of war scars in general. But uh, while I was trying to mend my wounds in the in the in the, in the prison cell um, or the jail cell, sorry, not a prison cell, but in the jail cell. Um, the police officer uh, who was befriending me uh, decided to play a game of chess with me. And uh, we were playing a game of chess and I was whooping him. I was killing him. Blah, 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 blah. You know? And he was just like, yo, how are you so good at chess but you make so many bad decisions in life? You know? How are you so intelligent, so creative, so, you know, bolsterous, da 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 and not making, uh, you know, wise decisions in life, you know? And, and you know, he's like, you need to apply the same tactics you use in chess to life, you know. And um, one of the things that my grandfather taught me in, in terms of uh, playing chess was uh, chess is not just about winning. It's about learning, you know. He's like, you either win or no, so you, are, you either lose or, or learn, like, you know. Because mm -hmm. um, he's like, if you win and you didn't learn anything, you still lost. And I was like, that's interesting, you know. And... Um, He's like, yeah, chess is all about learning how to make the best decisions, to make the best choices, you know. The greatest chess master is not the greatest chess master based on how he or she can calculate how many moves ahead. No, they know how to make the best choices to get them the results that they need, you know. 
um, and the better you get is the better uh, you are at creating opportunities so the choices that you make is very obvious and that's kind of uh, where my life kind of headed and where it's at now. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing. Like, um, it's amazing that like your your grandfather instilled like this blueprint, um, and then um, you went through a lot of uh, uh, growing pains, also enabled by the system. Um, and then um, art kind of helped you organize all of that. Is that is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And I'm so sorry for the loss of um, your close uh, uh, friends and family. Yeah, thank you. Um, so um, now um, you, you, you channeled um, all your um, experiences into um, your arts. Can you tell me more about um, your later years? Um, let's say talking about um, when you went to university, um, what did you study? How did you find yourself as, as a, a, a practicing artist? Yeah, so yeah, I found myself as a practicing artist. Uh, mainly it started uh, just from like a young age, like my parents would say I came out of the womb, like just artistic, you know, and uh, but I really started to hone in, hone in on it um, when I joined a gang and I'm doing the parenthesis when I, when I was when I was affiliated with uh, with gangs and, and then uh, just rolling with the wrong group of people. I was designing tattoos for people and also I was doing like uh, T-shirt designs um, back then. Airbrush shirts was really popular. Um, but also like when people die, you know, unfortunately it was a business, you know, uh, unfortunately when people die, they want you to make like the RIP shirts. So I was that, that go-to guy that everyone would be like, yo, can you draw a picture or, you know, design something, um, for so-and-so who passed away, you know, um, and they, they would pay me a little money, you know? And so when I started to do the, the tattoos for people, it kind of set me apart from everybody else. Like some of the OGs were just like, yo, do this, bro, do this. We don't want you to mess that up, you know, because now you're going to make us look bad if you don't have a tattoo designer for us, you know. Um, and also I was doing illegal graffiti as well. Um, and then so essentially in my later years, my artistic expression became my therapy, you know, just making sense of all the trauma I went through, making sense of like all the friends of loss, making sense of their pain, uh, the things that was happening in my family, et cetera, et cetera. So it became an outlet, especially when I was in the States on my own. Um, it became that outlet, um, and and like uh, also like when I was arrested, another time I was arrested, like I, I wrote this whole poem called "Through the Eyes of a Child," and later on, uh, it became a, a video. It became a, my short, my first short film, and that was through Bravo Facts. So that was my my first grant, uh, first award. So, anyways, um, essentially, long story short, in terms of my life. I got involved in an adult program at Nelson A. Boylan after I got kicked out of like 10 different schools for fighting and da 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 da. Mm -hmm. I went to the school with Rory, my brother who passed away uh, recently. He brought me to the school he was at, allowing me to like live with him because I just came back to Canada uh, because I got kicked out of school and I didn't like my whole, it was a whole thing. It was a whole kefaffle. Like I got arrested in the States and then they're like, oh, you're not in school, your student visas are revoked, send you back. You know, so I'm basically a deportee. Uh, so I got deported back, and anyways, um, and I was very fortunate not to get a not to get charged with anything. So that was a blessing, you know. Kept my uh, my record clean. I have no criminal record, but um, yeah, I ended up going into this adult program, which led me into the Remix Project, 
And uh, while on the remix project, that's where I really started to hone in on my artistic uh, and creative expression because I met someone named Danilo McCallum. Um, and I'm, well, I met Amanda Pierce, first of all. Amanda Pierce, shout out to Amanda Pierce, Governor General Award winning uh, creative and, uh, you know, a powerhouse behind CBC or in CBC, a part of CBC. Um, you know, and, and I call it my big sister. Uh, she just immediately, as soon as we met, we connected, we bonded. And then she introduced me to the Remix Project, and then she connected me to Danilo McCallum, who became my big brother and mentor. And Danilo made me realize that the way I was creatively expressing myself and trying to make sense of my pain and, and the things I went through uh, was very futuristic, you know. Mm -hmm. And he put me onto Octavia Butler and Afrofuturism, and from there, you know, uh, I just took the baton and kept running. Um, and essentially art became the gateway that allowed me to uh want to learn more you know and and know more and experience more and grow more you know because it was just a whole new world just going downtown freely and so i started doing murals and when i was doing murals that kind of changed the game for me that like that completely uh redirected my life because i did this uh, mural at lawrence heights um which is known as jungle and i was raised around like Crips, you know, so I thought I was a Crip, and I say I thought because you know I I, I don't identify as being a gang member, uh, but I, I rolled around with those type of cats, you know, and so Lawrence Heights is is a, often affiliated with Bloods, which is like our the rival to Crips, you know, coming from Rexdale, also was an issue of me being in Lawrence Heights doing a mural, and so I made it my part just knowing street codes and just being in that life. Uh, I made it my part to go meet with the OGs. Like, you know, I met with the big drug dealers in the area. I met with, like, some of the big gangsters in the area to let them know, like, what we're trying to do for the community and um, and how they can be involved, you know? And I yeah. got their respect. Yeah. I got their blessing. Yeah, and I was so able scary. to get... Hmm? That sounds so scary, man. Like, you approached uh, <laughs> the, big, the big dogs. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and I got the blessings from them to get, like, youth from, like, rivaling neighborhoods, like, rivaling blocks in that neighborhood to yeah. be a part of the mural. Um, and so that was one big thing that came out of that. And then the second big thing was uh, I was working on the mural, and we were trying to tell the story of Lawrence Heights and Neptune. We were trying to represent as much of, like, the inter-stories of those two communities working as a, as a, as one. And so a part of that was representing young people and elders, right? And I realized, yo, I'm like, yo, we're missing, like, an elderly gentleman. Mm -hmm. I love telling this story. Uh, so I was like, yo, we're missing an elderly gentleman. And as we're painting the mural, um, I looked over to my left. I, I'm never going to forget it. I looked over to my left, and I saw this guy just bouncing down the street. He had, he had the suspenders, and he had, like, a jazzy hat tipped to the side like this. He had a full white beard, beautiful, dark chocolate skin. He's just bouncing. He's just walking, bouncing, like just moving to his own rhythm, you know. And I was like, "Oh, sir, no." He stopped. He stopped by where I was painting, and he's like, "Oh, what is this about?" And I'm like, "Oh, this is for Lawrence Heights Neptunes." And he's like, "Oh, I've been living here for forty years." Then uh -huh. he said, telling us like, "Yo, you know, stories." And then I was like, "Oh, this is amazing." Da -da -da -da. And I was about to let him go, and uh, he 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 was about to light a cigarette. Then something that like slapped me in the back of my head and said, yo, listen, that's the guy. That's yeah. your guy. So I'm like, yo, sir. And I stopped him just before he smoked his cigarette. And I was like, yo, sir, can you, would you be willing to be in this mural? And he's like, yeah, sure. I'm like, can I just take your picture? 
He said, all right, sure, no problem, man. And he threw away his cigarette, and he just leaned back like this and just gave me the wickedest smile ever, like just full of warmth and just, you know, brilliance. And, you mm. know, we put him in the mural, and then he came by every day. Mm. For the next three weeks, came by every day. He brought us water. He started coming by with these little children, which we found out was his grandchildren. And uh, fast forward, long story short, at the opening, at the unveiling of the event, of the of the mural, he came with his family, big family, and um, and they were crying. And uh, I was like, why are you guys crying, you know? I was like, I know the meal is nice, but, you know, like, <laughs> and they're like, yo, you don't understand what you did for us. Like, you know, he, they're like, yo, when you stopped my grandfather, his name is Felix. When you stopped Felix that day, he was just diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. Mm-hmm. And the doctor told him the next cigarette he takes could kill him. And I just so happened to stop him just before he light that last cigarette. He just came from the doctor's office, was about to smoke that cigarette that could have killed him. And I stopped him. And uh, because we put him in the mural, he decided to exercise. He would walk to see us every day as part of his daily exercise. And then he decided later on uh, to reconnect with his family, which he was disconnected from for so many years. And so the grandchildren that we were seeing was his like early first uh, interactions with his grandchildren, all because he felt like a purpose to live again, you know, and um, and that moved me, you know, and I was like, wow, like you know, like I couldn't even take credit for that. I was just like, yo, I'm just a vessel, you know, I'm just an instrument. And for me, when I had that moment and just the success of that mural um, on so many different levels, made me realize like this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. This is like. This is my purpose. This is my calling, like, you know, to help others through my creative expression, you know, and being an instrument to bless others. And so um, wrapping that up, to answer your question, um, I eventually I got a grant. I mean, I got a bunch of bursaries and awards um, in high school in my in my adult program. Um, so I was around 20, I was 20, uh, 21 around this time. And so I got a bunch of bursaries and stuff by the time I graduated high school. And I also got the governor's general award. And uh, yeah, I was given all this money and I didn't know what to do with it because they're like, yo, this money bursaries is meant for education, not for your bank account. And I was like, so you're telling me I got 30 something thousand dollars and I can't just spend it. I got to use it for education. <laughs> and so uh, the logical thing to do again, think about chess and the connection is just uh, the logical thing was the best chess move was to take the money and, and pay for my education, you know? And so I went to OCAD university which is a whole nother story within itself, but essentially decided to uh, study drawing and painting um, at OCAD University. And even in getting into OCAD, it was a whole, it's a whole thing. And I, I'm not gonna put OCAD on blast right now, but it was a very interesting thing because it set me up to be where I am now in terms of dealing with racism, dealing with anti-black, uh, anti-black sentiments and just really standing for um, the ancestral work that I'm doing right now. So. Uh, yeah, and that just led me to continuing to want to grow as an artist, grow as a creative. And, and uh, one of the main things that I love to do is teach. You know, I love to share and give back, you know, whatever knowledge I was able to attain, you know, which is why I love to do these interviews and stuff. It's like, you know, I, I, I recognize I had a unique living experience that I was able that I was able to get all these blessings and have all these experiences and then make sense of them and then give it to others, you know, and so like, yeah, uh, when I went to South Africa, uh, while I was at OCAD, you know, because basically what happened at OCAD was they were telling me that 
if I continue to represent black people in art, mm -hmm. I'm not going to make it nowhere as an artist. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to take a year off. Yeah. So I went to South Africa. I was, I was supposed to do a residency with Dibby Young um, in South Africa. But when I got there, I was like, my spirit, not me, but my spirit was like, no, you're actually meant to be here for something else. And I started sure. to connect with all these like spiritual gurus. I went through like a rites of passage while I was there and it just completely changed my life. You know, just seeing also poverty on the continent due to racism, due to apartheid system was a whole nother level of mm -hmm. like eye opener, you know, but then also seeing the resilience and the resistance and also learning about the history and how the people continue to stay, um, you know, proud of who they are and retain their culture, but also fight against you know, the, the, the ongoing systems of colonization was just so beautiful, but I also seen the connection between South Africa and my own Jamaican um, ancestry. And then also the, just the, the diasporic African community of, of, of Toronto as well and, and Canada. Uh, I was just learning all these different connections, you know? And so essentially when I came back, I was on fire. I was just like, yo, you know, the ancestors got work to do, you know, here in, in, in Canada and and uh and that set me up in the route that I'm that I'm now in. Yeah, sorry, could you tell me a bit more about uh the the rite of passage? It sounds really interesting. <laughs> yeah, I can't speak on it too much just because there's a lot of sacred rituals that was taking place, but essentially it was uh like it there was like an ayahuasca uh involved, which is like you take a substance mm -hmm. and you, you literally go into a trance and, and like you speak with your spiritual guides and you see spiritual things and you, you see um and experience not just see you experience um different dimensions essentially essentially mm -hmm. um and you you in that space in that moment you kind of make your own choices of like where do you want your life to go and the things that you need to do and um you know and and i saw a lot of the things that i'm doing now you know back then this is like 2011 you know um and another thing was just like working with, uh, so I was, I was told that I have to like be a servant while I was there, you know? And so I was working at the orphanage, um, you know, I was just doing all these different things that um, I was told by the elders I needed to complete. So I had to go up Table Mountain and like I got almost got killed on my way up Table Mountain the first couple of times. And that's just because, because my spirit wasn't ready. So I like, I had to just, you know, there was so many little, little nuances of things I had to do to uh, just complete the larger task of the things I was asked to do in order to do the things I needed to do. Amazing, thank you so much for sharing. Um, that sounds like obviously like a trans transformational um, experience. And it's interesting that you were able to um, envision a lot of the things that you're doing now. So it's just a testament to how, um, you know, how, how much we're guided uh, essentially. So that's, that's amazing. Um, so, um, Given what you're talking about, um, I think it segues really well into talking about Afrofuturism. Um, where do you see um, the arts movement? Uh, where it where it is now, and where do you see it going? And what do you think will take it will take to get there? Mm, great question. So yeah, Afrofuturism is a really interesting thing because there are so many interpretations of it, as there should be, um, and there's so many different approaches to Afrofuturism. Um, and I like the conversation that's happening right now in terms of like making a clear distinction between um, the Western perspective on what they think the Afro future is and then the actual continental based 
uh, perspective, you know, or mm -hmm. continental base influence. Um, and so I, I, in 2020, I created, I completed a book called Cosmic Underground Northside uh, with Dr. Audrey Hudson. And it's uh, essentially Canada's first Afrofuturism art book. Yeah. And um, it features over 100 black Canadians in the book and just featuring like the works of different uh, Afrofuturistic expressions or black speculative expressions on like, you know, different ways that people think uh, about the future uh, across Canada. And so a lot of it had to do with coexistence, you know, um, and this idea of Ubuntu and Sankofa, you know, and Ubuntu means like human connection, like I am because we are, you know, how mm -hmm. we're interconnected. And then Sankofa represents how the past, present and future all interconnects, you know, but also how we can physically and spiritually learn from the past in order to inform the present to, 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 um, to make better for the future, you know, and so with those ideas you know um i think afrofuturism has so many potential to be one uh, a political movement uh, a social movement an education movement um beyond and just being an arts movement i would love to see uh an afrofuturism art museum mm -hmm. be created um i would love to see it become uh, uh an actual studies like a specialized studies you know, there's Caribbean studies, there's black studies, there's black feminist theory, you know, and uh, I think Afrofuturism is is all of that, plus some, you know. Um, and I, and I, I see it going in that direction of like actually being a degree that people can get and teach and, and you know, make a living from because uh, that's kind of like what I'm doing right now. Um, I have an organization called the Black Speculative Arts Movement. I'm one of the founders of it. Um, the global movement and then also one of the founders of the chapter here in Canada um, or the organization because now we're a not-for-profit and um, yeah we became an institute and so we're working towards being an actual like educational um, organization so we focus on project programs and partnership um, and yeah and we're just we're constantly like just doing new ways to get people to think think about their contribution to the future from an Afrocentric lens, you know, um, one of the things that we're really pushing is letting people know that Afrofuturism is not just about black people, it's about all people, right? Uh, with BSAM, like we look at the fundamental of Afrofuturism is indigenous futurism, which is about the earth, you know, because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, you know, uh, we can't have a future for human beings without, a, without some type of earth, you know? Or without the substance of earth you know even if we're on mars we need we need things from earth to keep living you know um and so uh you know octavia butler talks about earth seeds you know and so again that's why i'm saying it connects to indigenous futurism because unfortunately here in canada when we think about indigenous people we only think about the canadian indigenous people but then there's like indigenous people to africa there's indigenous people to the caribbean there's mm -hmm. even indigenous people to the south america you know etc etc you know so like Indigenous futurism is Afrofuturism, you know, it goes hand in hand, right? And so um, recognizing that is, is was a huge thing for me. And uh, now I'm seeing like, we're now pushing that uh, more for people to understand. And, and yeah, we're just expanding the conversation of how can we make uh, better choices as human beings. Sure. Thank you so much for explaining that. Um, 
like for me, uh, what really caught my ear was when you were talking about uh, a bit of a chasm between uh, the idea of Afrofuturism in the Americas and then the idea of Afrofuturism in in Africa. And then there's also uh, the indigeneity uh, concept. So how how are you merging uh, those two? Or, or are you trying to merge them in your uh, practice? And how are you approaching uh, that conversation? I mean, I think they naturally merge when you start talking about earth, right? When you start talking about land, when you start talking about the elements, uh, because every ancient indigenous African practice, right? So when I'm, when I'm saying ancient indigenous African practice, I'm talking about practices from the continent of mm -hmm. Africa. Um, they all have to do with land. They all have to do with earth, you know? And almost every major ethnic group they have deities that are linked to nature the yoruba have the the ashanti have it you know the zulu Rosa people the Bele people all of them you know they all have some type of deity that's connected to the to nature mm -hmm. so there's a there's a recognition that supernatural is the spiritual elements within nature you know we forget that supernatural just means the super nature you know um and so when you speak on that level, you're already speaking the language of Native American indigenous people. You know, you're already speaking the language of South American indigenous people because earth seeds across the globe recognize that we are intrinsically spiritually tied to the energetic element of the earth, you know, um, and then the cosmos, you know, which is why people pay attention to horoscopes, which is why like, you know, Women have moon and sun cycles, you know, which also re re relates to the the tides and and the and the storms of the year. Like you know, all these things are interconnected, um, which is why like and that will take me down like the feminist theory of like, you know, for me, Afrofuturism is feminist theory. It is a feminist praxis, you know. So, um, in terms of merging all these different things, I think once you start talking about the natural world, and when you're linking it back to uh, nature and how we connect to the earth. I think it all overlaps and intersects. Thanks so much. Um, that's that's uh, uh, very insightful. Uh, I'm gonna keep thinking about that. Um, my my other question. I, I can give you an example. Actually, um, we just did a public art installation um, called Olamina with uh, BSAM, led by uh, Nico Taylor and Queen Kui, and um, yeah, the Olamina. Is based off of uh, Octavia Butler's book, uh, Parable of the Sower. And it's the main character in the book, and, or Parable of the Talents. It's the main character in the book. But Olamina represents the power of change. That's what her name represents. And then she speaks about uh, change being a, a, like a deity, like worshiping change, honoring change, respecting change. And um, But she also talks about water, you know. And so we connected Olamina to Mamiwata which is like a Pan-African representation. You know, Mama Wata is in like so many different Afro-Caribbean um, practices. But then also recognizing that indigenous Ojibwe people and Haudenosaunee people have their own water deities. So having Olamina be that all-encompassing water spiritual representation, you know, we just did a blue head and we had like these sacred geometries, which were very um, transnational, trans-ethnic. Uh, by having that representation, it speaks to all people, you know, even though the features of her is very Afrocentric, um, the message of like honoring uh, water as a female, as a feminine um, energy of cre creation 
and change, which is what, um, you know, the feminine energy is about, um, it's all encompassing. You know, it's it's not just about race or, or about ethnic background. It's a it's a very much uh, a global, um, yeah, global message, you know, about, you know, water and also about um, women. Yeah, I saw the images on Instagram, so I'm definitely definitely gonna when I find time definitely go check it out, um, yes. and also share it on this uh, platform. Um, another uh, another question is, um, how do you find um, what's the role in public art in um, in the emancipation of Black people? So, how, yeah. in that, how, how what role do you see um, the changes we're seeing in public art now? How do you see that um, helping in the social and economic development of uh, Black people? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost. The biggest misconception that is continuing to plague our people is that monument making is a Eurocentric practice. Mm -hmm. Like the fact, like if you, if you, if I say, oh, that's a beautiful monument, and you're automatically thinking a white person, and not like ancient Egypt or ancient Zimbabwe or like the Nok people, like automatically your your thinking is informed by white supremacy. Sure. You know, and so it's it's really just shifting the conversation and allowing people to recognize like monuments, uh, monument making is a very much an African practice. This is why we made so many figurines. This is why uh, so many uh, cultures have masks. You know, the mask is a monument. It is a memorial to the spirits, to the ancestors, you know. And so um, the statues uh, is like representing values of people but it's also representing like what that person represents and so by having more of those in the landscape liberates and and and, and relates to emancipation because it's allowing us to see our values allowing other people to see our value it's reminding us of our value but it's also reminding us that we can attain greater things you know Nelson Mandela was a simple man was a very simple man his politics was so basic you know but it's a sacrifice that he was willing to make that allowed us to exalt him to where he is, you know? Um, his politics weren't the greatest, unfortunately, but his sacrifice for the politics, for the for the people is what made us like recognize him for who he is, you know? Same thing with Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King, when he first was uh, starting off, was a, was a, uh, he had a speech impediment originally, you know? And so he learned how to work with that speech impediment. So what I'm saying is like, he wasn't always the greatest speaker, but now we consider him as one of the great orators, you know? Uh, Malcolm X, same thing, you know? Uh, Marcus Garvey, this guy is, is like twist of his day. Like, you know, like, you're like, da -da 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 -da. like he speaks so fast, but what he had to say was meaningful, you know? Um, and the list goes on, you know? Maya Angelou speaks about how she was a mute for so long, you know, and how she wouldn't speak. You know, but then, uh, you know, she found her voice through poetry, you know. Um, so anyways, I'm not, all I'm saying is like all these people that we honor in monuments and all these people that we, we choose to to uh, immortalize in a way, you know, um, by preserving their likeness and their story into what I call techno fossils. It, it's liberating because it gives us something to, to realize that we can attain and achieve and reach even higher, you know, and celebrate as well, right? By having that representation and the likeness. The the lack thereof is an erasure, you know, because then now when you can't see yourself represented, 
it's hard to see that you can achieve those things. It's hard to see it possible for for any of us to be able to be like, okay, maybe I could do something like this, or maybe I could be as brave as X, Y, and Z, you know. But when you can't see it, it's hard to achieve it. So, um, so that's so those are the multiple ways that it's uh, it's liberating and and uh, and empowering for for people of African descent across the globe, really. Yeah, uh, thanks so much. Yeah, like, yeah, I think back, like, um, when I studied um, international development, like all the things, like, the first thing that they do when they're, you know, they're trying to um, uh, uh, stop people from forming communities is to, you know, um, sidetrack the leaders or this or kill the leaders, right. So um, I think having those monuments, like, yeah, is, is a very strong, uh, strong way to, to start to rebuild that uh, sense of community as well. So thank you for sharing. I think um, one last question, well, two last questions. Um, I work in, in the corporate world, but I, I, I'm kind of in two worlds. Um, and I'm trying to think like, how can we bring um, futuristic uh, concepts to, let's say I work in insurance, like uh, to the products we develop, how can we start thinking of these things in a, a new lens that's both inclusive and um, uh, that brings people together and um, kind of aligns with um, the future that we are trying to build. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the beautiful thing about Afrofuturism is that it, it draws upon a lot of Pan-African concepts, mm -hmm. right? And so, like, there are things like Kwanzaa, like, you know, in the seven principles of Kwanzaa, there's, like, you know, Ma'at, um, you know, from ancient Egypt, you know, there's all these uh, concepts that are like are used across so many different cultures. And I would say like the best way to think about the future is to think about the past, you know? Um, and what I mean by that is like drawn upon like some of these ancient knowledges, some of these, uh, these well-known ideas and really just utilizing them, you know? Um, so like, for example, in the corporate world, like if you use the concept of Ubuntu, cause I spoke about that earlier, like, what does human connection mean when you're trying to ensure something, you know? Mm -hmm. what, does, what does saying that I am because we are mean when I'm saying, like, I want to insure your house, when I'm saying, like, hey, I want to provide that safety for you, that comfort for you, you know? So it's just, it's really talking about human kindness and really talking about, like, you know, um, treating people fairly, you know? Um, George Catlin, who's, like, a very controversial comedian, but kind of like the white version of... Dave Chappelle, you know, he kind of like made this whole joke that I saw on Instagram recently about like cutting down the Ten Commandments into like two, like pressing it down to two, you know, and it was a really great point. I was like, oh, shoot, like that's, he's on to something, you know, and he was just like, oh, the two commandments you really need is don't be dishonest or or don't be like, yeah, don't be dishonest or, or, or you know, misleading person and don't kill. You know, <laughs> that's a for sure. And it's like he's like, yo, you just condense everything. You just condense everything. You know, and he's like, what about love your neighbor as, as love yourself? I that, I always thought that was like the most important. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it's, I mean, like, yeah, love is a tricky thing because like I may not like you, but I can still show kindness to you, and I can still be honest with you. You know. Yeah. But anyways, he was just trying to say like, don't be a crappy person. You know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of the crappiness that we see in people is, like, based on 
dishonesty and whatever, whatever. But anyways, all, I, all I'm trying to say is like, a lot of those things are based in actual ancient, that already exist in ancient African ideologies. Like Ma'at, for, for folks who don't know what Ma'at is, is like, when you look at the deeds in your life, if you're to weigh against a feather, if the feather is heavier than the deeds, then the deed is good. But if the deed is heavier than the feather, then that means it's it's, it's weighted with negativity, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, that was like a spiritual practice that the Egyptians used to actually use, you know, um, to 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 weigh the scales of people of of like uh, a person's um, virtues, you know. And and so that's where you get the Libra scale from, you know. Aha! Greeks and Romans copied us. What is <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, so, so there's many, so many, there's so many concepts. Again, like I mentioned in, in Kwanzaa with the seven principles, the Naguzo Saba, you know, like there's so many principles within the Kwanzaa that can like be so useful to people, even though Kwanzaa started in the States. Um, again, it's like that Pan-African aspect of it. So it's like, how does it translate to different aspects? And the first principle in Kwanzaa is Umoja, unity, you know? Mm-hmm. So what does that look like, you know? And then you go into uh, the third principle is Ujima or Ujima, right? Which is collective work and responsibility. Just on that aspect alone, we're already building community. We're already building society. If you just think about Ujima more often, you know, um, and then the next one is uh, Ujama, you know what I mean? Which is like cooperative economics, you know? So it's like, how can we all help each other, you know, and support each other to, to make a living? You know, economics is not just money. It's about sustainable living, you know. So, anyways, all that. Um, those are just some tangible ways I think uh, we can use this idea of futurism. Because for me, I use a term called sankofanology, mm-hmm. which is how the African past ideas can inform the future, you know. And so, you see sankofanology in Black Panther, you know, where they use a lot of like ancient ideas but in a futuristic context, you know? Like the fact that, um, uh, I forgot her name, but she was like flying the plane using sand, like divinations in the sand, you know? Like divination is an ancient practice, you know, from from Mali, from the Dogons to, you know, across the continent, you know, the Ewe people, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But now we're seeing it in a futuristic context, right? So, um, yeah. So I just say, like, you know, bringing out some of these ancient ideas, some of these older African ideas, and then using them to inform how we can make a better society. Sure. Well, thank and you. And also, so- again, there's overlaps, right? With the earth seeds, again, there's going to be overlaps. So you're going to see that in indigenous cu- cultures here in Canada, there's going to be concepts like that that overlaps, you know? Um, like, for example, Sankofa complements perfectly with, uh, with the seven grandfather teachings. You know, and with the with the seven generations concept of like the the things you do today has a ripple effect with seven generations before you and the seven generations after you. You know, those go hand in hand. So like when you think about that concept, you're now recognizing that you have to take accountability for your actions because the issue you do affects your great 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 grandparents. And then affects your great, 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 great grandchildren, you know, or descendants, you know, if you don't choose to have children. So it's like taking accountability and recognizing you're an ancestor. For sure, for sure. Yeah, that's a that's a lot to uh, uh, put together, but I think it boils down to um, uh, looking at the past 
studying ways that they, you know, uh, cooperated and um, bringing those concepts into um, the products that we're developing for the future and also being uh, very values based. So definitely looking forward to just like um, reading up on that as well. Uh, so uh, thank you so much for sharing. Um, how, well, last question is, um, how can you be better supported uh, by anyone who's listening? Yeah, great question. Um, I think uh, just just uh, following me on social media, I guess. Uh, Instagram is like my main, my main artery. Um, so it's keep growing, Q. Um, and just check out the, the projects I'm doing. Please check out the monument, the Joshua Glover Memorial at Joshua Glover Park. And uh, go, it's uh, 4208 Dundas Street West. Um, take some pictures with it, you know, because Joshua Glover's story is such a simple story. And uh, I'm surprised that it's the first monument in Toronto because it's it's not the biggest black story out of Toronto. So by supporting that monument, it's gonna encourage the government to create more, you know? And I don't even wanna be the one to create more. Like I, I'm blessed with just being the first one to create, create it uh, and to inspire those to create the next one, you know? But if I get to create the next one, then hey, yeah. I'm all for it. You know, so uh, best way to support me is like checking out these these uh, public art pieces that I'm creating, and then um, lobbying the government so I can create some more. I'm trying to create one of Gene Augustine. Tell yeah. the government, you know, write the government, write Doug Ford and John Tory and whoever you might know in government to cough up some money. But um, best way to support me is support yourself. You know, do what you love, do what you enjoy, and follow your passion and follow your purpose. Amazing. Amazing note to, to, to end on. Thank you so much for your time. I, uh, I personally learned a lot and I hope a lot of people learn, learn a lot as well. And yeah, looking forward to maybe one day talking more about the, these concepts in depth. Um, but yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, no problem. Have a good one. Thank you.